Friends, I am absolutely thrilled about the response our Pain to Purpose course is receiving right now. So many of you are finding healing from your trauma, resetting your faith foundations, and moving through your valley with a renewed sense of purpose because of this course. And this is exactly what our prayer was for this course when we first started it. One of our community group guides sent me an email after she went through the course and said this about it. I can't say enough incredible things about these videos, the way the Holy Spirit is coming alongside everything you say to peel back layers and begin to heal has been one of the most remarkable experiences for me on this journey. I am really just blown away. If you're a pastor or a church leader or a small group leader, we want to bring this course to you, your congregation or your small group in a way that is affordable for both you and the members of your spiritual community. That's why we have two brand new applications for this course, one for churches and one for small groups. Small group leaders, for a limited time, we're knocking $50 off the small group bundle price. Pastors and church leaders, until September 1st, you can lock in your annual license of the Pain to Purpose course for 50% off the normal price. That's an outrageous discount. We developed this course as a pathway to come alongside you, help people heal inside the context of their spiritual community, and release them back on mission within your local church or your small group. If you're interested in finding out more about the Pain to Purpose course and to see if it's a fit for your spiritual community, head over to mypaintopurposeplan.com and choose either for churches or for my small group. Again, that's mypaintopurposeplan.com. Welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey, your host, and joining me, Aubrey, our co-host. Aubrey, so great to see you. So great to be here, Davey. Hey, we are continuing our racial reconciliation conversations. We're in a right. time where it seems like a lot of the conversation has started to decrescendo a little bit. Um, it was kind right. of a big ordeal over the over the period of a couple of weeks, and in some yeah. respects, it was very trendy to talk about. We made a conscious decision as a ministry to say, hey, this is an important topic. It's an important issue where there really is some some real trauma that people are dealing with, and right. our listeners are affected by this in multiple different ways. And so let's bring some voices on over the period of several months, and let's continue these conversations because they're important conversations. And so we've decided yeah. to do that, and we have Sheila Wise Rowe on the podcast today with us. Who's amazing. I love her. She has earned her name wise. Yes, she has. A woman of wisdom. And not only talking about racial trauma, but just trauma in general too. She has a lot to bring to the whole conversation. Yeah, I really appreciated how she takes that conversation. It is general. It's like, hey, here's how we apply trauma. And so everyone right. can glean something from this, whether or not you have experienced trauma that's specifically because of uh, the color of your skin you're able yeah. to still glean from this particular conversation. And so you're not going to want to you're not going to want to fast forward through this one. It's unbelievably right. insightful. I thought, you know, it would be a great way for us to start this conversation because we're continuing these conversations, but also this is just kind of a way of life for you and for me and I know especially yep. you and your husband, the church that you guys pastor. This is a major yep. Um, kind of bedrock of what you guys do as a church, especially in the area that you guys minister in. So yep. I'd love to hear from you, Aubrey, what does racial reconciliation kind of look like for you and your family yeah. personally? You know, how do you take yeah. this, not just from this macro conversational level that we're, we're on, but just uh, more of a micro down in the, you know, Samson household, this is what this looks like. Yep. I would say for our family, I mean, this, like you said, this is a constant conversation. There is not a day that goes by that... Um, you were in, we lead a multi-ethnic church. Mm -hmm. uh, our neighborhood is a multi-ethnic neighborhood. It's primarily Hispanic neighborhood. Um, there is, yeah, there's not a day that goes by that we aren't having conversations yeah. with our kids or we aren't, uh, watching movies or reading books yeah. or just discussing issues around race with our neighbors, with our friends, and especially with our kiddos. So some things that we do as a family, um, we, we do what we call a dinner documentary and discussion night. Oh, nice. And we will invite friends over, neighbors over, and we'll we'll show a documentary on some issue around race, or it can be a movie. It doesn't necessarily yeah, right. have to be like this heavy documentary if kids are there especially, but right. some movie that talks about issues around race. And we'll provide dinner, and then we just discuss what we learned, what we felt, what we heard. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's a chance to listen, especially to our brothers and sisters of color. Um, it's a chance to learn and a chance to just have an open dialogue. So that's one wow. thing that we do pretty consistently. Curious, we what, do that what's as your, a church as well. What's your favorite documentary that you guys have watched or movie that you guys have watched? So this one is a little controversial. Okay. I, right. I will I will put it out there because I think it presses some really good buttons, yeah. but not everyone will agree with what it puts out there. It's one called 13th. Okay. Yeah. And it's really about um, the justice system yeah. and in in ways that it has been unjust specifically towards black men. Mm. And that's not one we have watched with our kids. Right. Uh, right. With our kids, we watch a good one called Aquila and the Bee about a little girl and a spelling <laughs> bee. That's a really, really good. Nice. Um, so that, that one, you know, depending where you are politically, it can push some buttons. But yeah. I think they're actually good buttons and you can kind of go... Why, why is my heart racing a little bit right now and sort of invite God into that and then bring that up in the conversation. Hey, this, my heart was racing here. I didn't feel great about this and, and just have a dialogue. I think those are really good opportunities for reconciliation. I think that's the, that's the point here. Like we're not necessarily going to agree with everything right? with each, you know, even if you're having conversations with each other, you're not necessarily going to agree on every point, uh, societally, you're not going to agree on every point politically, but to lean into those parts that make you like, why is my heart racing? Why do I, yes. why do I have a physiological response right now right. to something I don't agree to? Because right. that in and of itself should tell you, okay, there's something harbored here mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. I should be able to disagree and it not create this kind of a response if I'm disagreeing right. in a healthy way, if we are living in harmony and unity in a healthy way. Unity does right. not necessarily mean that everybody agrees. That's right. It's not the absence of conflict even, but it is like willing to be uncomfortable and address those things so that we can have some of these hard conversations to get to a place of reconciliation. Yeah. Because you can't have reconciliation without having those those healing right. conversations. Right. And then we're we're kind of in a constant stream of like holding book clubs at our house. Yeah, so we did good. be the bridge. We're about to do one um with Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. Okay. And we feel like our 14-year-old is old enough now to be a part of those discussions. So he's going to join us in this book club. And, you know, we may have to talk about certain things with him in a different way, but it's time. It's, you know, it's time for him to, he's got lots of friends of color. And so he needs to be aware of what they're going through. So anyway, that's That's some of the things that we do as a family. What about you guys? Well, this is kind of, as an aside, this is not necessarily strategically what we've done. We just recently, when all of this stuff kind of uh, surfaced, we started watching some movies and some documentaries too, as I'm sure a lot of people all over the country did. Uh, yeah. One of my favorites was Just Mercy. Um, oh, it's so good. It was so good. And we watched that yes. together. Our kids did not watch that with us either. It was after they went to bed. We watched it with my yeah. my parents. And of course, I love uh, Michael B. Jordan. I mean, as an actor, just incredible. He's awesome. So fantastic yeah. with it. But um, what was cool is that there was Ray Hinton was in that referenced in that as his uh, neck, the cell next to him. And that was, I don't remember right. the name of the book, but Christy led a, a book club where they read Ray Hinton's like memoir. Uh, yeah, and so there was a the cool bridge, cool book? connection. I can't remember the name of it. The sun does shine. That was the name of it. Sun does shine. And so she spoke volumes about that book and it just, it piqued my curiosity too. So just, Mm. it was really cool. That wasn't necessarily strategically something that we had leaned into, but it was cool how that was something as an aside. Now, strategically, I think for me, just kind of addressing what we said earlier about leaning into the uncomfortable conversations, I think that's kind of where, where I've been at. Um, you know, our, we did this whole kind of series. It was one conversation we split up into five parts with Lamoris Crawford. And right. since that 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 night that Lamoris and his wife spent uh, at our house, we've also had their family over uh, as well, and and just been able to like ask questions and dig in, and you know, trying to step into those places where um, where 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 I don't understand and ask the questions, and it might mm. feel awkward, you know, for me right. to go, hey man, like. This is something, but it was, it's really cool to have someone like Lamoris who is okay with me addressing, Hey, this is awkward right now for me to ask this question. This is uncomfortable for me, but I need to ask this question and maybe you can help me understand. And that's been super helpful. And so I feel like I've just been trying to place myself in those conversations. We're partnering with a a ministry here that we've partnered with for several years now called Youth for Christ. And they do some urban ministry in particular a neighborhood that Christy and I are passionate about that her stepdad lives in and and that he's passionate about. And so it's a high crime rate. Uh, neighborhood. And so yeah. they have several of those pockets. Uh, they have they have essentially leaders over each one of those 
neighborhoods that are, you know, high pockets of crime that are, um, uh, a high a high majority of low income and uh right you know black families in one you know uh neighborhood but then also another neighborhood is predominantly latino and so just yep. kind of some mixed race neighborhoods and yep. so we're having a three part conversation with the leaders of those neighborhoods who all come from different uh essentially societal sectors and some minority yep sectors and they're bringing the kind of their perspective into this whole equation. And we're going to sit down for the next Friday, next three Fridays and have conversations about this where we're just going to learn and we're just going to, we're going to say, Hey, talk to me about this. And what's cool is the lady that leads youth for Christ that is spearheading these conversations. She and I are kind of moderating these conversations together. She is a white woman from the UK. No way. So just brilliantly wise, but it's, wow. you know, she has no, because con- she doesn't understand the civil rights movement. She wasn't around for that. She's like, racism right. looks very different over in the UK. It's a very different right. nature. Um, different which is history than different we have. History, yep. Which is something that when I just finished the biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he commented on that. Ironically, Dietrich Bonhoeffer coming from Germany, Nazi Germany. Prior to the Nazi regime really rising up, came to America and noted that the racism in America, black, (gasps) white racism, was Mm. beyond anything he had ever seen. Wow. He was shocked about it and and wrote volumes about, I cannot believe... The racist, the racism that exists in this culture. And this was right before Nazi Germany rises up and begins to oppress several people groups. And so it was just an ironic thing. And so, yeah, over in Europe, it's a whole different. So this, this woman, Allie, she's, she's helping me spearhead these conversations where we're just learning. And so that, I think that's for us. It's just like, let's strategically put ourselves in uncomfortable spaces right? and allow our heart rate to get a little bit and and allow our words to get fumbled over a little bit. Yep. Yeah. And not know what to say and probably say the wrong thing. But at the end yes. of the day, we're learning. And, and that's, so that's right. kind of And you're learning doing. in a community of grace where people are willing yeah. to come beside you and help you learn, like educate you because you need to. Yeah. We need to learn some things and do it better. That's so good. That's so good. Well, I'm sure those conversations that we're going to have is going to be they're going to be extremely insightful. I know you guys are learning a lot right now, Aubrey, mm-hmm. as a family. And I know you guys as listeners are going to learn a ton from this conversation that we have with Sheila Wise Rowe. So why don't we go ahead and lean in and listen to this. Sheila, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Could you, um, before we kind of dive in and talk a little bit about your story and talk about the work that you and your husband are doing, would you just give us a little bit of a context? Uh, where, Where do you live? Tell us a little bit about your family. Kind of give us an overview of what you guys do, and and then we can dive into the backstory of it all. Yeah. So I um, I live in Boston, the Boston area. Uh, My husband is a dean at a Christian college here, at Gordon College. We have two adult children. One who's graduated is is going to graduate once they find out how they're going to graduate. So she's soon to graduate. And we have a son who's been out for about uh, two and a half years. And um, so he's working full time and uh, and she's home. Wow. Um, having been home since March. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we are... In, we've been in ministry for a number of years, um, for probably close to 30 years. Uh, my husband primarily in academia at uh, Eastern Nazarene College, Gordon College, um, and then our family transplanted to South Africa from 2005 to 2016. And we were involved, um, I was involved with ministry to uh, traumatized homeless women mm-hmm. and children and um, working, uh, created a shelter residence for them and a day program and an apartment program that was connected to the church that we were at. And my husband, uh, Nicholas Rowe, uh, worked at, um, was a dean and a history professor at a a small university uh, in in Johannesburg. So, um, so that's a little bit of like that story. Um, I would say that my experiences growing up in Boston then transplanting to South Africa, returning to Boston in 2016, um, 
have really shaped and formed um, my perspectives around healing and yeah. race. And, um, I have a master's in counseling. So I've, uh, for a number of years, was a licensed marriage and family therapist. So I've worked with families and individuals and couples and um, in secular settings as well as Christian settings. And, um, at, you know, more recently, it's more spiritual direction and um, dealing with issues around racial trauma. Yeah. And um, what else have we done? So we've done, <laughs> um, we have the Siren Movement, which is, um, it's out of uh, a ministry, uh, the Rehoboth House, where we basically offer um, just a space for people of color primarily. And, um, you know, if they're, they're married, partner is white or whatever, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it's really a place to kind of process some of what is happening mm. um, to you know, get a listening ear, um, information. We run a heart course that um, will start in the fall, and um, that's to help people work through racial trauma. Mm. Um, and then I've spent the last number of months spending lots of time on Zoom, yeah, sure. having lots of conversations. Um, you know, and some of it's educational, but also ministry. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, it's quite a lot of work that you guys are involved in, and and I'm you know, particularly interested in this this concept of of racial yeah. trauma, and I'd I'd love for you to kind of almost define that for us first, because I know that's where you spend. You said you spend the bulk of your work right now. If you can kind of define what what do you mean by racial trauma uh, first, and then we'll kind of yeah. dive in from there. So, when a person of color, whether they're black, indigenous, or Asian, or other person of color, experiences racism, and what can happen is that whether it's a once-off incident or it's an ongoing incident um, or incidents, uh, what happens is that uh, there's a, a response and it's a, a response physically, emotionally, even spiritually to that trauma. Mm. And we hold that trauma in. Um, and part of yeah. the, the struggle is how to actually address it, how to heal from it, how to uh, have space to, to let that out, to share, um, to get prayer. Uh, and, and for many people, um, there isn't a, like a sense of how, what do you do with that? Um, for many of us, we have been just, um, I would say that from our childhood, we've gotten this message that we just need to pack it in and keep it moving. You know, like we, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have time to really process any of that. And so it does yeah. damage um, in, on, in, on multiple levels. And so in my book, I, I lay out some of the consequences that we see uh, with it. And, and that includes uh, really a deep weariness and an exhaustion um, that we're carrying this stress and it's stress that's not dealt with. And so there's another incident. And so there's another layer of stress. And the, these racist incidents can be, um, it can be literally that it was between an interpersonal kind of an encounter. It could be something that is vicarious and that we've seen these, the videos of George Floyd, that though that kind of vicarious trauma really hits us deeply because we, we really look at that as this could be my husband, this could be my child. Mm -hmm. Um, there are also ways in which uh, it, you know, that racism is, it can be systemic. We're seeing that with COVID in terms of the huge numbers of black and brown people who are one contracting COVID-19, but also dying of it. So you see it, we see it with the monuments. Um, there are ways in which monuments give messages and whether people want to admit that or not, there's this meta communication that's happening. That if we, if as a person of color, as an African-American, I'm seeing a monument of, uh, you know, someone, a Confederate soldier, a general celebrated, mm -hmm. that sends a message to me that that is of value. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm possibly not yeah. as important. Um, so you have all these different layers. You have issues around workspace, uh, issues around, you know, our communities and mm -hmm. the divestment that has happened in communities of color and whether it's educationally or even it's just basic sanitation issues. Yeah. Um, you know, we look at Flint, Michigan, um, basically brown, black and poor people mm -hmm. um, still don't have 100 percent clean water. Yeah. 
So if you think about the preponderance of all of these issues and it's there is no space to, to begin to deal with the stress and the trauma of that. So there's a real weariness, there's a fatigue that we carry. For some of us, there's silence and that we just are not dealing with it. We're in denial or we just push it down and we don't deal with it and we start to see it in our bodies. Mm. High blood pressure, um, diabetes, uh, also, you know, attention issues. Uh, we see rage mm. and some of what we're seeing in terms of um, whether it's the rioting on the streets, et cetera, it's, it's around just if you, you know, having to stuff it down and stuff it down and stuff right. it down and seeing no, no recourse, there's, there's bound to be an explosion wow. of some sort. Yeah. Um, and then you, you know, there's grief and that certainly is the case right now um, because of that high number of COVID deaths and the, the racial stuff that's going on and the killings. There's a lot of, there's a deep well of grief that people are carrying um, shame is another one. Um, and, you know, often for folk who are kind of in that academic space, um, but it doesn't even matter academically, even in the workspace, there's a sense of, am I good enough? Um, and particularly if the messages that are coming forth are, no, not really, you're not really good enough. Uh, and then um, addiction is another consequence of, of um, racism. So those are those are the multitude of ways in which racial trauma expresses itself um, in a person. You know, so it's uh, it's definitely uh, at this point, I feel like we've come to this place where we've got to attend to it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there's like this rush to reconciliation, but it doesn't address the trauma. Piece. Mm. Um, and so and what ends up happening is that over time people... You know, we, we can get really frustrated in spaces where we're expecting there to be reconciliation, um, but we continue to experience kind of like these microaggressions where it's just these little things, little questions of who we are, whether it's being pulled over by the police, whether it's being yeah. tailed in the shopping mall, all those things affect us. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's a, a unbelievable point because in just, you know, normal interpersonal relationships, you know, if reconciliation is the goal, there are some steps that you have to go through before you can even get to reconciliation. Right. You know, we can't not acknowledge the, the, the pain or, you yeah. know, the, the perpetration or the, the offense that took place in someone's life there. We can't skip over that step of confession for that, or, Absolutely. you know, asking for forgiveness and those things. We can't skip over those things. Mm-hmm. Can, can you maybe unpack a little bit more why, you know, when you take that kind of general concept, of the steps toward reconciliation, and then you overlay it onto the current crisis that's going on in our country when it comes to race and what has been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah. Why is it? Why is it even more important to take those steps? Yeah. Well, you know what? Part of the the issue with us is that we have not really been taught history. Mm. Well, like the real story. Um, there's a way in which we have taught our children a sanitized version of what has happened. So some people were like, really like shocked, like, wow, there was the Japanese internment, really? Mm. Like had no idea, had no idea about um, what happened with the Wall Street um, in Tulsa, Mm. Um, just the decimation of an entire community, had no idea about lynching during reconstruction or even the trail of tears with the, uh, our native brothers and sisters. So part of what needs to happen, as you said, it's, it's a sharing of let's take an honest look at what has happened. Mm. Just honestly, we can't deny reality. Um, and, uh, you know, slavery on top of that. And, you know, let's take an honest look at all of it. Uh, in order to move forward, there has to be that honest looking at it. And there has to be a lament over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the pro- part of the problem is that we stop at that. So we've had many incidents where people have shared and people have washed each other's feet and mm-hmm. or said that I'm sorry, um, but that's kind of the end of it. Um, and there's another there's another step um, beyond that, and that is that okay. Well, what does that look like on the other side of I'm sorry? How do I work? that out, this relationship out? How do I, um, in the places where, in essence, you have, uh, whether you've been disenfranchised, you've been literally robbed, um, or there has been death, 
uh, as a consequence of things. What is the place of repair? Uh, kind of a, a model of restorative justice. Yeah. And I think that often the question is, well, I wasn't born then, so why do I have the consequences of that? Um, and the realities of if if you have somehow benefited from it on whatever level, and the benefit can be a literal benefit, um, uh, you know, in terms of, well, you, if I look at Massachusetts, for instance, the um, average white household in Massachusetts has about over 200,000 in assets, and primarily it's in property. Mm. However, because of redlining, uh, African Americans uh, and uh, brown and Asian uh, and Latinx population do not. Mm. And so the value that they have in assets, it's $8. That wasn't a misprint. Wow. That wasn't a misspoke. It's eight dollars, and that's primary because we don't typically we don't own property, and part of that was because of redlining, and part of that was predatory lending. So all of that uh, affected us. And so, what are the ways in which? Okay, the benefit was that okay, you're not that, so then you can buy a house, you can get a mortgage mm-hmm. at a reasonable rate, you can build equity for your children, and so now there has been a disadvantage. How? How is the Lord calling me to repair? That really is a fundamental question. Yeah. So the conversations about what the government is going to do or not do remains to be seen. But it's what is the Lord asking each of us to do in, in light of that reality? And wow. that's the import, that's the more important question. That's, that's such a great distinction because over here, as you're telling me this, I'm kind of, my brain's reeling and I'm going, okay, uh, is this a corporate, you know, collective type uh, repairing is this an individual repairing? How does this actually play out practically, you know, for yeah. us? Like what is, what, what can I do personally? What can we do as the church? What can we do as a nation? Yeah. Because it seems to be on all of those different fronts. It might Absolutely. look different, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, and we shouldn't minimize any of those. I think that but we want systemic change, but it's, it has to be on all of those three levels. Mm. It's not about, and so some people will just say, well, okay, you know, we don't want, everybody's focusing on individual. We just want the government to, you know, make systemic change. Yeah, we want the government to make systemic change, but the church needs to make systemic change. Mm -hmm. Individuals need to make systemic change, uh, impact. And so, and I've seen that. I've seen that in um, some of the people who are featured in my book, just in terms of the choices that they've made about where they're going to live, how they're going to minister, um, are they going to share their resources, share their access? Um, those are those that can be an individual issue. It also can be um, one that translates into how do you um, work? You know, are you a supervisor? You know, there's the this term that's going around called you know being an anti-racist, mm-hmm. and so it really is looking at all of those three levels and saying how. Can I, how can we be anti-racist? Meaning, you know, am I, when I'm looking at hiring, you know, am I aware of, are there any implicit or explicit bias? Where are the places where, you know, I'm, I'm just making choices based on what's familiar to me and not necessarily um, really even praying about it. I'm just kind of making choices that are familiar. Um, And so... It's important that, you know, in, in all these, and this is not about, it's not about politics. It's not about, um, you know, there's lots of other things that mm-hmm. there are accusations about social justice, et cetera. It really is about kingdom. It's about, yeah. you know, what is the heart of God? What is the heart of Jesus in this? As we, if we are collectively the body of Christ, mm-hmm. every one of us, how is it that we are supporting, uplifting, encouraging every one of us yeah. and that nobody's left behind? That's so good. I'd love to kind of explore specifically the church. I feel like that's a you know an avenue I'm operating in consistently. It's an it's kind of the the voice mm-hmm. that we're trying to speak into uh, with most of the people who are listening to this are followers of Jesus. Most people are are part of the body of Christ, and and so you know there's there are certainly things we can do about at least we can play our part in in voting and making sure that we can you know uh, play our part in legislative change. Absolutely, we each have to play our part individually. But I think sometimes where maybe it gets a little gray or sticky is what does the church do? Because uh, there's kind of two extreme 
veins of thought. You know, the one extreme is that the church solely focuses on, you know, the spiritual formation of people and, you know, offering services or gatherings for people to worship, offering small groups for spiritual formation. But, but the, you know, you'll see some that don't necessarily get involved in uh, community work or, you know, yeah. social justice type work. In, in within their community. And then you'll see other churches that do a fantastic job of being able to do that. But mm-hmm. let's take specifically this situation in Massachusetts you were talking about with the property, you know, inequality, uh, yeah. property ownership inequality. Does the right. church have an ability to really reach into that space in your opinion? Yeah. And, and how, how could that play out? Yeah, it can. And one interesting thing in, um, is that there was a, one of the women who's in the book uh, was living in a community, a black community, primarily black community. Um, a friend of hers uh, bought a house, a white friend. She's black, uh, part black and part native. Her friend bought a house in the community because she felt called right. to be there to minister, et cetera. Um, when the black woman, um, Carla, who's in the book, um, felt, you know, she had enough savings, she's ready to buy a house, but because of gentrification in Boston, mm. the rents and the mortgages, like property values are just ridiculous. Yep. And so what has happened is more and more of what was predominantly black is now um, becoming more diverse. Uh, unfortunately, what is happening is that it means that property values suddenly yeah. shoot up and then the people who live there can't afford to be there anymore. Yeah. So they can't afford to pay the rent or they can't afford to buy. And so she was not able to to buy, to afford it. And um, Laura really wrestled with that question um, at a turning point in her life where she was um, really looking at where, you know, what's the next step for her in yeah. terms of ministry and getting more involved in ministry in her church and, and really praying and wrestling um, uh, with God in prayer about what, this is an injustice. What is her part in this? And she uh, felt that um, the Lord was asking her to sell the house, the, the house that she bought was a two-family house to Carla at the price that she paid 10 years ago. Mm. Wow. And um, and so that act of faith is just, yeah, uh, it's crazy. Because when the assessment came back and the house that um she was now in this this house that she's selling had increased in value by five hundred thousand dollars so she basically handed her five hundred thousand dollars in equity in this house wow and but she felt and her parents were on board everybody they were like you know what this is this is something that the lord is calling her to do she absolutely felt released to do it and um that it's just profound that wow. level of now can, does everybody have to do that level of giving and sacrifice? I mean, I think it's a, it's huge. It's yeah. a huge model for, yeah. for all of us. Um, so, but I think it just requires a really uh, a church or community sitting down and really thinking and, and praying about what does that really look like? That's so good. Um, there, you know, there are some churches that are partnered with inner city churches and in that way they're helping to kind of bridge um, you know, whether it's sharing the pulpit, but also resources. Right. Uh, and so that that's happening in some places, not a whole lot. Uh, and so I, I think on an individual level, as a believer, we pray and we ask the Lord, what is it that you would have me do? Mm. And as a church body, we come together and say, what would you have me do? Lord? Wow. That's so reminiscent of like Acts 2, you know, at the very yes, end where exactly. they're, all the believers were together. They had everything in common and yeah. they gave to each other as right. each had needed, you know, as each yeah. had need, they were selling their properties off and bringing the proceeds forward to the church. In this situation, it's trying to sell in such a way that, you know, the example that you gave, that it stays affordable for, yes. uh, to give an equal opportunity to someone who wouldn't otherwise have that opportunity. Absolutely. I, I love that. My wife and I, we, we live in Indianapolis and um, we, we invest in a rental property in a particular area that we have a heart for as well, that, um, you know, it's 40% vacancy. It's, it is a majority black community where there's an extreme poverty and we invest in that area to keep rents low yeah, that's so that great. we can provide opportunity for, you know, people to have affordable housing in that space. 
And I love that idea of even just going, okay, now what does it look like for when someone wants to take the next step? How do you yeah. even do maybe, you know, uh, if they can't get a loan, do owner financing to be yeah. able to provide them that opportunity to build equity, to change and alter the course of the, you know, the generational poverty that's taken place in their life. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's mm. great. Yeah, there's a church in Cambridge, um, Cambridge um, Fellowship Church, um, and they uh, they have a, something called Traction Life, and that's partly where Laura and Carla are connected with, mm. and in which, so Car- Carla's hope is that with this asset that she's able to provide literally space because it's a multiple family house yeah. for people who want to learn, want to start to save, giving them, you know, reasonable rent so they can they can then buy their own property yep, so it's it is. really yeah yeah and, and so also cool. they, yeah and they call it traction life because they right. really look at it as a spectrum of some people have space they can invite people into their literally into their home yeah um and then others have the ability to you know so give whether it's funds or uh help someone as you said you know yeah. with the down payment whatever yeah. And so it's really, um, it's really amazing to see that, what that, the work that they're doing. That's cool. That's cool. What a great way to bridge like that personal, uh, ownership of how do I personally step into this space and do what I can, what the Holy Spirit's led me to do. How do we, as the church do this, yeah. you know, yeah. and not just try to rely on legislation to be able to enact these, um, you know, it balance out the inequality that's taken place in the systemic places of our cities. Wow. That's so, that's so great. nothing is a wasted family. It's Christy Blackburn. I'm interrupting this interview to tell you about how I've continued in my own recovery from pain and trauma without having to leave my house. Like legit guys, I wake up, turn on my computer, grab my glasses and do counseling my PJs. It's amazing. So over the past two months, I have been using faithful counseling once a week with this amazing counselor as a way to work through some unforeseen postpartum anxiety and unaddressed trauma that has surfaced over the last several months. They're an incredible online worldwide organization who is sponsoring this podcast, and I have found them to be such a helpful resource in my life. They provide virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board to provide therapy and counseling. Faithful Counseling is designed as a solution for people seeking traditional mental health counseling who would prefer hearing from the perspective of a Christian. If you're seeking a mental health professional who's a practicing believer like I was, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Once you're matched with a counselor, in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or even text messaging. If you're a match with a counselor that isn't a good fit for you, you can change counselors, which I think is such an important part of anyone's counseling journey. I always recommend that to everybody that if you aren't matched with one counselor, you still can find other people that can connect with you and help you move forward. So. They also have weekly group in our sessions where members can learn in a group environment with a counselor about various topics that we all face. Just to clarify, Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource during your healing journey. It costs $65 per week and financial aid is available for those who qualify. So you can apply for that aid during the signup process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of our family, our Nothing Is Wasted family. And again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. And now back to the interview. Sheila, I'd love to kind of shift gears because I know earlier you referenced you were you were in Boston, you went to South Africa, and then you came back to Boston. And the, yeah. that stretch of time, your experiences in that stretch of time, really begin to inform the work that you're doing. Can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced in those, you know, that those transitions that put such a deep burden on your heart for uh, helping to heal racial trauma? So, you know, I would have to say that in terms of the racial trauma stuff, it really happened very early on for me mm-hmm. and just being a part of the busing program in Boston and um, being in a pre-official busing program called Operation Exodus and uh, and experiencing just the shock of being plucked out of a um, an all-Black school mm-hmm. and into a mostly white school and where I think there may have been 20 Black students in the whole school, if that. And um, this is a primary school. So this was like from grade one. Okay. 
Yeah. And just uh, experiencing just absolutely a sense of that I'm not accepted or acceptable. And my, you know, intellect was attacked. I um, experienced all sorts of, a, a lot of it was from the teachers and then also some stuff from the students, but just the sense that I wasn't competent and that I wasn't good enough. Mm. And, um, and I felt it, I was not welcome there. And, and yet it was my parents hope that this opportunity was really going to help me in terms of my educational growth. Um, but I very early on was experiencing a lot of physical responses mm. to being there and would have hives and, you know, sometimes difficulty breathing and headaches and, uh, you know, and that really didn't, you know, gave me some reprieve at moments, but I continued um, to be in that environment where uh, I went through that process through primary school and then official busing started um, in 74. And by then I was um, in middle school or the early middle school and just watching the venom, uh, it was across the nation, everyone was looking at Boston. Boston had really erupted. And it was just a horrible um, situation. And my siblings and I went to different schools. Um, some of us were in the same school, but others, some went to schools where there were fights every single day and um, rocks thrown and bricks and bats and fights. Oh. And it was just terrific. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in a high, early high school in which Molotov cocktails thrown at the bus, wow. signs saying, you know, mm-hmm. go home, we don't want you here, you know, swear words. And uh, it was it was traumatic. Yeah. It was absolutely traumatic. And it really affected like who, how I saw myself. Although I, I had a drive to, you know, really want something more. Because mm-hmm. I, I think my parents really, and I think I know they, they wanted that for, for us. Uh, something more. And, and yet I always had to fight against that nagging voice that said, you don't really belong and you're not good enough. And, um, and then you top that with experiences that um, continued to give that message. And so it really took a long time for me to begin to start to unravel that and to, uh, to begin to heal. And so I, I did see a therapist um, for a number of years. I participated in healing groups uh, where, you know, it was a time, it wasn't just black folk in the group. It was the groups were mixed, but it was an opportunity to really unpack the damage of my childhood mm. and in um, really allowing the Lord to bring his peace and his healing um, into those places of pain. And so by the time I graduated from college, um, I, I was not a believer until after college, mm. actually. And um, and that's when the that, that heal, deep healing began. Okay. Um, and then we, uh, you know, we got married. I was practicing counseling and continuing to do my own work uh, and then moving to South Africa. And that's a totally different, um, South Africa is a complex place mm. in that, um, even though my husband and I are black and we're going to a country that is predominantly black, we're not South African. And so there was a way in which we didn't, um, we didn't feel like, okay, yes, now we're South African. Um, and so we had to kind of, kind of navigate that. Um, but we did have a sense of really being loved and welcomed there. Um, but you know, it, it is a country that is struggles with a lot of issues around, Um, particularly around women and the abuse of women. Mm. And so um, that was a hard thing, particularly in the work that I was doing, working with women and children. Um, And so that kind of, that informed just working with women around that kind of trauma and then coming back to the U.S. uh, and kind of bringing all of those experiences, arriving in 2016 in the middle of the election cycle and being like, wow, what yeah. happened over 10 years? It just, um, and you know, I get some pushback like, well, this is nothing new. And in some ways it wasn't new, but I think just having the perspective of having gone away for 10 years yeah. and then coming back, it was, it felt like it was much more marked um, than it had been. Yeah. Wow. As, as you were, you know, I'm really curious the the healing groups that you were involved in as you were beginning to 
unpack some of this trauma that you had experienced. And then, you know, I noticed that you do a lot of work with, with your counseling practice and specifically emotional inner healing, which is a something we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit, just a, like what you just referenced, allowing the Lord to come in and do the healing experientially uh, to, to heal those wounds that of what you have experienced. You know, we've had someone say that an emotionally laden trauma has to be healed with an emotionally laden experience, specifically yes. from the Holy Spirit, you know? Yes. And um, I'm, I'm really curious though, the, what were the components of that healing or, or maybe steps? I don't know if steps is quite the right word because we all know that healing from trauma is not a successive linear thing. It's very much like a, but there are some, we call them waypoints that kind of guide you on that journey. What were some of those big things that those big pillars or waypoints that stuck out to you on your own journey that maybe you've now put into your practice to say, okay, if we're going to help you heal from this trauma, these are the things that we've got to address and that we've got to do. Yeah. Well, what I think first and foremost, it's the issue of our perceptions of God mm. and, and how has what we've experienced, our upbringing, what society says, et cetera. How is that, um, how has that affected the truth of who yeah. God is? Wow. And oftentimes that we see that there's not, um, there's not a congruence there, that there are ways in which we've experienced so much pain that we then project that onto God, that in some ways, either he's, he's an angry God or he's a disappointed God or he's an absent God. Yeah. Um, Can you give us a personal example of that from you? What, what, what did you begin to believe about God from your own trauma? Well, I, one thing was that um, because of my father, um, and I, I write about my father and just his own racial trauma and how I saw that played out, um, ultimately he, he left the family when I was about 12, and he, um, he was still in Massachusetts, uh, and then he eventually moved to California. And so my perception of God was that God was, uh, would eventually disappear. He, like, he would abandon me. Like I couldn't count on God. Yeah. actually. And even when I became a Christian, I early on, if someone would have said that, said that to me, well, I think that you might believe that I got, I would say no, no. But then mm -hmm. when it, when I took the time to actually like listen and actually, and also the hearing of other people's stories, I began to hear that I actually have this belief um, that God is going to not show up. Mm -hmm. And so I need to own that before him and, and surrender that uh, in order to allow him to be present. He is present mm -hmm. and he is active in my life. Whether I know it or not, he's there. But I need to surrender that lie mm -hmm. that he's not. Wow. And, um, and so that was, that was one step for me was dealing with that. And I often um, do that similar work with, with folk. And generally, I would say a large number of people have that issue. There, yeah. There's an issue around their perception of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's really addressing that piece. Um, secondly, is really um, allowing the Lord to deal with the pain that we continue to carry around early childhood stuff, whether it was in, in the context of a family, um, maybe it's peer relationships, maybe it's, um, you know, just societal, it's, it may be racial trauma, um, but it's often in the talking about these things, the releasing of it, because yeah. um, many of us just hold it in. We carry it with us. Um, and along with that, there's a, there's a whole layer of other stuff. There's yeah. bitterness, there's anger, there's, there's grief that needs to be worked through. Um, and, and so having the opportunity to really unpack all of those different things um, and, and before the Lord um, lamenting, like being, brutally honest with God, like he can handle it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's great when you have someone to kind of walk with you through that. Um, and if you can't, you know, I mean, God definitely is there. So yeah. it definitely can happen without a person, but it is helpful to have a person who can kind of validate. Yes. Mm. Like, like God did show up in, in, in this, God did meet you. And when you release that to him, like you really did release it. Mm. Um, and then, I think just other things are just around um, places where um, we're seeing things, uh, if I'm seeing things manifesting in my life currently, um, where I'm trying to mask um, pain and whether it's addictions or some of the things that I talked about, even with racial trauma, 
like we we can use those things to not feel right, right. and um you know and god created us to feel we're feeling people yeah um it's the question is what we do with those feelings um and so it's helping people to to manage those feelings mm. to you know scripture talks about taking every thought captive and making it subject to christ of you know i'm having this feeling lord or this thought what do you think about it god rather than what is the TV or the internet right. thing right. about it? God, what do you say about it? Mm. So it's it's that, and there's a lot more. But <laughs> well, you have to you have to pick up the book in order to <laughs> in order to read all that stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, which well, we haven't even mentioned this, but you know, you've just released a book recently called um, "Healing Racial Trauma." Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, it's available. I'm assuming everywhere. Right? Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So you do you, do you you dive into this quite a bit? more in detail yeah it's um it's it's a ebook audiobook and it's a print paperback wow awesome so it's all three um and so we do deal with um a lot of this there um my husband um nicholas rowe and i wrote a book called the well of life and which actually is a curriculum that we take people through yeah. so that you know a lot of what i've just kind of laid out is found in that book yeah. um which uh we're um it's getting revised a bit but yeah um but yeah, so that's both of those. Well, it's so encouraging. I was looking a little bit at the well of the well of life, and it's so encouraging because it follows parallel with how we coach people to work through their trauma as well. Yeah. And I was like, "Hmm, Lord, it's almost like there is a universal principle on how to do." Oh, Scripture! Here it is. This is how yeah. Scripture tells us that we need to work through. The trauma yeah. that's that we experience every single one of us has trauma whether it's big t trauma or little t trauma or you know death by a thousand cuts as we call it we mm -hmm. all and if it's not addressed if it's not worked through it is going to manifest itself in some pretty ugly ways yeah. in our lives and um this is just one example what we're seeing happen in our country right now is one example of that manifestation you're seeing the extremes of emotions being um, you know, being, being manifested out loud in a lot of different ways. I'm, I'm really curious as you've kind of been watching all of this and been involved, you know, actively in the things that have happened, particularly since the George Floyd video was released. Can you give me a little bit, I know we don't have a lot of time, so it might be a little bit more summation, yeah. but can you kind of give me what was going on in your mind and, and how, how you were, processing this, watching all of this, uh, your commentary on what's happening in our yeah. country right now? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, the, it's on two levels. One is yeah. that I, I'm being, you know, called to comment, um, just given the book yeah. and given the work that I've done over the number of years, but just even on a personal level, um, there are ways in which that that video and you know people have said well should the video actually even be out there should people be watching the video and i really i feel a mix it's kind of a mixed mixed feelings about right. it um and that it is so excruciatingly painful yeah. that i would say you know if you don't if you yeah. can't you know but you yet at the same it, time don't watch it yeah yeah if the video was not out there we wouldn't have any level of justice it would have been a totally different story right. and so how many other different stories are we told because mm. there isn't a video but to listen to the whole exchange to watch it um was so so painful mm. and and so it really tapped into some of my own family history it tapped into the stories that were shared in the book um all of the people in the book um you know they're black asian latinx um biracial, uh, there's a South African story in there. Like they all experienced levels of trauma and can relate to that. And there are ways in which it was really painful uh, because I am a black woman. I'm married to a black man. I have black children. And so there's this fear that bubbles up around what if, you know, what if my son or my husband gets pulled over? Um, what could happen? Yeah. And, and, and clearly that was, you know, it's something that I've had to really wrestle with the Lord around um, because it's, it, it's just painful and to see it repeatedly. And then the one that really, like, I just was undone was Elijah 
McLean, Elijah McLean. Yeah, I just, the audio of that was just like, uh, it was the yeah. epitome of someone who's totally, you know, it just it seems like a really sweet person right. who's right. totally confused as to why, yeah. he, why, why is he being pulled over? It just made no sense. Um, and then it, it ends up with, um, you know, he's, he's killed. And uh, it just, and I, and maybe the proximity to the ages of my children, it really um, brought up a lot. So I, you know, had to wrestle with feelings of exhaustion and weariness. And I've had to, you know, in terms of the book and working through that, having yeah. to revisit my own words yeah. and, um, and dealing with that. And, um, you know, being a part of a community where I can openly share how I'm feeling uh, and to get support around that was, is, has been really important. Mm. And, um, and, and I'm sure will continue to be. And so, you know, more and more what I am getting are people who are saying, I, I need to deal with this. Like I am experiencing, I have been experiencing racial trauma for a long time. This is like the tip of the iceberg yeah. and I've got to deal with this. Um, and so um, there's lots of people reaching out individually um, and in the context of some of the things that I've been doing, podcasts and town halls and all that, yeah. of just, um, you know, planting seeds, hopefully seeds that would provide healing and hope um, in the midst of everything that's going on. And I feel like for many people, there's a realization of it has to, we've got to move past um, the uh, just kind of inertia around this issue, these issues around racism. And they're at, so there's the, the call for more, yeah. the call for systemic change. Um, that's a part of the healing process too. Yeah. It's part of that, that place of activism of, you know, this, how's the Lord calling me to active, you know, be active in right. the pursuit of justice. And so um, that, that has been helpful in, in helping people to look at that way. How do we, how do we do that in a way that um, really has impact? Mm. Um, and it's done in a way that the Lord would direct us, yeah. you know, that he's the center of that, yeah. um, that action yeah. um, versus are just kind of randomly acting and we don't really even know why or what right. it is, what's the end goal of what it is that we're, we're actually doing. Right. Wow. Kind of to, to close this, if you were sitting in front of, um, you know, someone that maybe, maybe in your ministry field of influence or just a neighbor of yours. And if you're sitting in front of a, a white friend of yours and sitting in front of a black friend of yours, and you're trying to help them each, kind of understand how to move forward in this. Um, what would you say to each one of them? Yeah. You know, I, I would say to, um, whether, you know, any person of color, black, anyone, right, right. I would say this is a moment where, um, there, there has to be an intentionality of looking at the pain mm. of getting help and, and working through that. Um, and also balancing the trauma that we're experiencing with hope mm. and with life and with joy and where we seeing even shoots of life and yeah. joy yeah. and, um, where are we seeing these small incremental changes, um, to celebrate those. And we want the big and, and it, it, we strive for the big, right. you know, as God leads, but we also, need to celebrate the small things and yeah, whether it's small, good. small systemic changes or whether it's even just the small changes personally, interpersonally. Um, and, and where are the places of celebrating, you know, celebrating whether it's a, you know, someone completed high school or graduated from college yeah. or, you know, got their GED or, you know, their electricians training, whatever it is, um, marriages, births. Yeah. Like there's so much that, um, that that black and brown communities are. It's not just all 100% trauma all the time. Right. Like we're we're still we're still moving forward. We're still um, living our lives, right. and um, and not to forget that to to be able to really be present in uh, what we have and and the beauty that's there, and not to let all of what's happening to just overshadow that that we don't see. Um, you know, where, where God is at work in the trauma part, but also where is God work 
working in the everyday life. That's so good. And then, you know, what would you say to, to, you know, one of your friends who's white? Um, you know, so what I see right now is a lot of, uh, a lot of white folk who are, you know, whether they're out there protesting or whether, um, they're being a lot more confrontational about things that they see maybe in their church or in their community or even in their workplace. And, and I, I would say, yes, look at that. Look at even individual as an individual, the whole anti-racism piece mm-hmm. where, you know, how are you exhibiting that in your own life? How is that happening in your work? Are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to, and I would encourage um, people to really pray about what is their piece to do? Because not everybody can do everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I, I can't march, um, partly because I, my husband um, had a kidney transplant, so he's, he's immunocompromised, so mm. I can't be out there just so yeah. I can bring it home. Yeah. Um, you know, but what can I do? I can, I use the platforms that I'm given, um, podcasts and interviews, et cetera, um, to, to share and to speak. Uh, and, and so what is it that the Lord is calling you to do interpersonally? Um, are there groups out there? Um, can you take a group through um, a book? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I am not one to say, oh, book clubs. Ah, I, I think, great. Some people, it's the first time, the only way yeah. that they're going to encounter something. And then they've got to figure out what do you do past the book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the, what is the small thing? And then the next thing, and what's a bigger thing? Uh, and really being prayerful about what the Lord would have you do. I mean, faith without works is dead. Yep. So yeah. putting that faith into action, what is that action supposed to look like? And wow. for them to um, really hold themselves accountable, the church accountable, others accountable to do that, to put the faith into action. Wow. So good. So good. Sheila, where can, you know, if someone is hearing this right now and they're like, I'm interested in getting connected with the work that you're doing. Uh, whether that be through, you know, I know you mentioned the heart course, that's one of those yeah. things, whether it's through, you know, obviously your book, but other kinds of counseling services that you guys provide and the different things, where, where can we find out more about you and what you guys are doing? Um, so my, I have a website, so SheilaWiseRow.com, and that's more about my writing and speaking um, stuff, so that's one. Um, and then the other one um, I would suggest would be the RehobothHouse.com, and the Siren Movement is connected to that. Oh, cool. Okay. And so either of those, and it's info at the RehobothHouse.com or um, info at SheilaWiseRow.com. Great. Great. Well, this has been so insightful, very educating and, um, and helpful. I mean, I, and, and, and not just that, but, but filled with hope as well. I love just hearing your perspective because it fills me with hope that we're, we're, we're moving on the right track. It feels like, and I know that there's all kinds of, you know, from just depending on what seat you're sitting in, it can be very, very unnerving and scary right now yeah. to see what's happening in our country. But just to hear your perspective fills me with a lot of hope that we can sit down and have conversations and we can really dig into uh, trauma and we can lament over that. We can ask for forgiveness and we can work through these things together. Um, So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Hey, that was a great conversation, yeah. Davey. I love her wisdom and um, I love her heart for uh, racial reconciliation and racial, racial healing yeah. and then just general healing from trauma as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, she brings a lot to the table. So good. Uh, listening to her episode reminded me of two things. One, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, a black woman, and I was talking with her about my own kids. I have three sons, as mm-hmm. you know, and you know, what, what should I be talking to them about? What shouldn't I be talking to them about? And she, she got real quiet. And then she was like, Aubrey, I'm going to say something to you. And I was like, okay. She said, I don't have the luxury of avoiding any aspect of this conversation with my sons. Wow. And it brought me to tears. Like, but I realized, oh, she's right. So I can't just because my kids are white boys and it may not impact them in the same way 
they need to be brothers in Christ to yeah. their black and brown brothers and sisters. And so they need to know what's going on. They need to understand these conversations. Yeah, that's so true. Um, wow. That's good. The other thing that I was thinking about with Sheila's conversation, she talks a lot about redlining, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt like God brought to mind this verse from Isaiah 65, where Isaiah is talking about mm -hmm. the, the age to come, the day of salvation, yeah. new creation, the right. Lord's return. And one thing that he says is, this is from verse 27, in those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Wow. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses. They will not confiscate their vineyards. My people will live as long as trees and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard won gains. Wow. They will not work in vain. Wow. And I just love that across time and space, the Lord knew that that would be a need for people yep. and that, um, his vision for human flourishing, his vision for his kingdom involves people getting to live in the houses they right, built and not right. having it stolen from them. Yep. And so I I feel like that's the work we get to be a part of now. And that's the work I can't wait to see the Lord do in that's the future. So great. Yeah. And you know, in our context, right, when it comes to housing specifically, I mean you talk about that. What, what that means is not necessarily the houses they built, but being able to purchase homes, being able that's to right. kind of step up out of some of the systemic poverty that takes That's place right. in a lot of these communities and being able to, being able to have the opportunity to own a home and yes. build equity and all the things that we're supposed to be able to do in the quote unquote American yeah. dream. Uh, right. being able to have those equal opportunities. So yeah, that's absolutely, uh, we're going to continue having these conversations. And, um, and so I'm excited about the people that we're learning from and that you guys are going to get to glean from as well as we're learning from them. We want to thank sleeping at last for providing all the music for the nothing is wasted podcast. You can go and listen to his music anywhere. Music can be streamed or downloaded. And if this episode or any of our episodes have ministered to you, please do us a favor. Let us know about that. Go and rate and review on iTunes. And uh, that would we would very much appreciate it. It would help us out quite a bit and also help to get the word out there. If you have a story that you would like to submit, we'd love for you to go to nothingiswasted.com slash stories. Again, nothingiswasted.com slash stories and tell us your story. And if you want to read some more stories that are not featured on the podcast, you can go there as well. Nothingiswasted.com slash stories and read those stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries, at Davy Blackburn and at Obsamp, A U B S A M P. And next week we have a great guest. Mm -hmm. Oz Hillman is going to be on talking about a really powerful story. I can't yeah. wait to hear from him. Let's go ahead and take a listen to Davy's interview with Oz Hillman. In 1994, uh, what I call my year from hell came mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, my wife and I had struggled, uh, in our married life for a number of years. And she came in and said, I want to separate. And, um, and I had, a investments on the East coast and West coast of about $500,000. And I get a call from my financial advisor and says, your money's gone. You've been mm. the victim of a quote, Bernie Madoff type situation. And, uh, wow. And it was a scam that my advisor didn't know he was being scammed. Oh, wow. My vice president left me and took my second largest account. And uh, so within a matter of three months, my wife would end up filing for divorce and life would, you know, change from one place to a whole nother place. And that would usher me into a seven year season of adversity. And I got down to my last thousand bucks and uh, I wasn't sure what, you know, what was up and really struggling to, to know, you know, why God allowed this to happen. 